Well, whether you're a Christian or not, nobody wants to see a dysfunctional church. And the defection and decline of churches today that we see, it feels new, and yet it's not really a new thing. Uh, the problems were described and the prescriptions were laid out 2,000 years ago in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. And so what we have been doing has been going back to that, looking at Paul's letter to Timothy and looking at his advice to uh, Timothy about how to steer the church through dangerous waters. Uh, today we're doing a sit-down with the inventor of gender. Uh, it's my ob observation that many po people today are burdened by their gender rather than blessed by it. Uh, I, I was reading in uh, uh, the inter interviews in a book named Of Boys and Men, and Richard Reeves there he recounts a number of interviews that he makes with, um, with, with boys growing through t the teen years and into their young adulthood. Uh, one of the questions that he asked was, what do you like about being a boy? Interestingly, most of the boys couldn't answer the question. One of them, uh, a university student, said this, that's interesting, I've never thought about that. You hear a lot more about what's wrong with guys and didn't have any, any sense of, 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 of anything positive to say or any sense of the blessing of uh, how he had been created. On the other hand, the challenges of being a woman in, uh, in today's society are in some ways greater than ever. Uh, take uh, Solange Magnano, for example. Uh, she was crowned Miss Argentina in 1994. She went on to have a successful modeling career but after 15 years, her 38-year-old body was showing signs of invincibility. She decided she needed to do something and do something drastic. She flew to Buenos Aires, and there she had a, uh, a, a what is called gluteoplasty, uh, gl uh, where they use implants to tighten things up back there, if you like. Unfortunately, uh, the, uh, the surgery... Uh, was a, a difficult one. She suffered a pulmonary embolism and she died shortly thereafter, leaving a husband and two twin boys. A friend of hers later lamented, she lived the life of a goddess. She was the envy of everybody. Now she's dead because she wanted a slightly firmer behind. We're supposed to be living in an age where we talk about gender liberation. And yet we see the opposite of that. We see gender oppression. We see people weighed down by uh, their, uh, their, their gender and struggling with a society's vision for it. By contrast, Sam Albury writes this, there is a deep fundamental very goodness to the way God has designed us to be. And our being made as men and women is at the heart of it. Unfortunately, uh, the Bible's teachings on gender, if you weren't aware, are not very popular today. And so the church, rather than teaching on uh, God's vision and God's design for gender, has backed down and backed away from what the scriptures teach about it. And so many well-intentioned Christians are left either confused or just ignorant and just not knowing uh, really much about what the scriptures actually lay out for us.
And so we're, we're purposing to correct those this morning. I didn't ask for this sermon. We're working through 1 Timothy. It's just there. Uh, but we are going to deal with it as we deal with all of the topics that come up in our uh, verse-by-verse reading of Scripture and uh, would ask you to join with me in dealing with this because it is such a, uh, a critical one. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Uh, and the Black Church Bible's in the rack under the seat in front of you. It's on page 932. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of God. Now, the passage has a fairly straightforward layout. There are instructions for, for men, instructions for women, and then teachings about how men and women are to relate to one another. So we're going to start with the men. Uh, the, it's the, first pa- the passage's first point says that God's liberation of men begins with a humble dependence on God rather than a, an angry fight for yourself. it's reminding us that men have a tendency to look to themselves, to trust in themselves, to want to get what they want, and when they don't get it, they get irritated, angry, and often resort to uh, more desperate means of getting their own way. God's plan is to help change that. Hear the mandate for men in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Notice, first of all, the words, in every place. This was not a a, a particular problem in Ephesus that, boy, the, the, the men just don't seem to be praying there. He's saying, more fundamentally, this is a... Uh, a, a universal problem. Paul found himself repeating this message over and over again. It's more here, here reminding us that this lack of dependence on God, the, the tendency to resort to taking matters into your own hand, that is uh, something that not all men th- struggle with, but many men at, f- find themselves falling in this area. It's a weakness uh, of many men. Similarly, in verse 9, when he says, likewise, and we'll then begin to address some instructions to women, it is also not just an Ephesian problem. He is dealing with generalities, things that he sees again and again as he is ministering to people in various settings. These are general instructions that the church needs to take note of. Now, the way that Paul prayers this call to prayer along with this warning about anger uh, and fighting. At first, you might, you might get the impression that there's, 
there's a prayer meeting and the, the, the men are kind of sitting in the corner and uh, they're, as they're praying, they're kind of fighting with each other or getting into big arguments. And that, that's probably not what's happening. More likely, he's saying, the reason that you are finding yourselves fighting all the time, the we- reason that you are so quick to anger is that you are not showing up at the prayer meeting. You are, you are not on your knees in prayer seeking God's will. Instead, you are ignoring prayer, living self-sufficient, proud lives, and as a result, you are pushing your own will. And he's saying, God has, a, God has good news for you. You don't have to continue to live like that. In prayer, you can recognize, you can learn that it is not you who is running this, the universe. In prayer, we recognize, I'm not God. I have needs. I have weakness. I have need of someone greater in my life. And it is when I am living in dependence upon him that I am less likely to take matters into my own hands, get angry, get even, get frustrated, and find myself in those situations. Now, not every guy struggles with anger, and not everyone expresses it in the same way. But you don't often hear of road rage incidents involving women, right? That, that does seem to be more of a tendency uh, with, with guys, and in particular, it, it is this proud self-sufficiency. Some shout, some hurt, some withdraw, were easily offended, but not easily reconciled. And God's prescription is that we would give ourselves to prayer and in prayer learn to recognize that we're not God, but we've been created to live in dependence on God. In prayer, we we acknowledge all of these things. And so I need to ask, men, are you growing in prayer? Would, Would the people around you describe you as a man of prayer? Do you take the lead? Are you the one that takes the initiative in uh, praying for your wife, praying for your children, praying for friends and those around you? Are you you giving yourselves to prayer? Are you seeking to grow in prayer? Because often this is something that comes more naturally to women. This is why the men are singled out here. And it would be very easy for men to sit back and let women who are more naturally uh, have more strengths in this area, well, just let them do it. And yet when we do so, the, that pride, that self-sufficiency, the anger, the irritation that we can let simmer in our lives only grows. And so I want to encourage you, man, if, I encourage you to grow in prayer. Uh, we actually have a recovery group for prayerless men here at the church. Uh, it's every Wednesday morning. We just call it the men's prayer meeting, but what it actually is is a recovery group for, for prayerless men. We are learning to grow in dependence on God each week by putting his a- agenda first, uh, recognizing we don't have all of the answers. We can't fix it all on, on our own. We put things into God's hands and we remind ourselves that we need him. Encourage you to be a part of it. Encourage you to grow in prayer. Take, take the lead in prayer. Take the initiative in prayer. So God's liberation of men begins with a humble dependence on God, not an angry fight for yourself. 
Now let's look at the, 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 the teaching now on God's liberation of women. God's liberation of women begins with a vision of goodness you can attain, not a standard of beauty that you can't. God will never make you feel like you're not pretty enough or not sexy enough. That, that is just never going to be the message that you feel in God's presence, right? Instead, he seeks to, you to, to free you from the world's beauty pageant and help you to see the rest and the relief that there is in his acceptance and in his call to uh, focus instead on inner beauty. Now, the instruction, instructions to women, like the instructions to men, are pretty straightforward, and I'll read them again, verses 9 and 10. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearl or co- co- pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Now, uh, a little bit of cultural context. We are told by historians that at this period in history, uh, the Roman Empire was going through something of a cultural revolution. Uh, for uh, several hundred years, Greek uh, styles of, uh, of dress that were very conservative, very modest, uh, held sway through most of the Roman Empire. But during this period, there was a, a shift taking place. And what they, they came about what, what historians call the vision of the modern Roman woman. And, and what, what was happening was that wealthier Roman women were beginning to dress and, and style themselves uh, differently from uh, the, the typical Greek standards. Simple hairstyles that were pinned back with a covering to uh, cover up the skin of the neck and the back, uh, those were now being abandoned and Uh, the coverings were coming off to reveal the neck, show a little more skin. Uh, They were being replaced with these more elaborate hairdos that were uh, attracting attention. And women were being told that the path to freedom freedom and power was in more glam, more sexuality. Now, today, you don't turn heads by braiding your hair and putting on some pearls. I, I don't, I, I, this, that doesn't normally come up in, in conversation. Uh, and, and so we, we, are, we are hearing Paul on his own terms here. And since I'm not an apostle, I don't have apostolic authority or insight, I, I'm not setting any standards or adjudicating any rules for women's fashion. Uh, and, and yet the prescription that Paul lays out here uh, is unchanged. The message is that the answer to your longing to be beautiful isn't a bigger clothing budget. It isn't in more glamour sexuality. It's in your character. It is in this inner beauty that we are called to. And it is in there that we find our relief from an otherwise oppressive pursuit of something that is unattainable. So you work at kindness and faithfulness and love. In a world that is obsessed with external beauty, you focus on what's inside instead. First Peter chapter 3, verse 4 says, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
Uh, just very practically, when you're standing in front of the mirror tomorrow morning and you're tempted to try on yet another outfit, at, at that moment, I want you to tell yourself, I think this one's probably just fine. But it does need something. It needs a little more gentleness, a little more patience, a little more grace. And when I seek the Lord for those things and I give myself to him, he is pleased to give me those things. If that's what I want, if that's what I am seeking, he provides. And you don't need surgery for that. That kind of beauty never fades. And it's precious to God. He says he notices. It is an expression of his delight in these things. And you can feel his acceptance when you give, him, give yourself to it. So God's liberation of men begins with a humble dependence on God, not an angry fight for yourself. God's liberation of women similarly begins with a vision of goodness you can attain, not a standard of beauty that you can't. And maybe we could end there. And it would be a lot easier if I could end here. <laughs> but the passage doesn't end there. What the inventor of gender does now is show us how men and women are to relate to one another. And that's our final point. God's design is for the genders to complement one another, not compete with one another. God has designed us with equal worth, but not identical roles. God has, has given us equal dignity, but that doesn't mean that we're the same. And we don't find our dignity in trying to be the same. Instead, we celebrate our diversity in how God has created us. Now, we need to start by saying that up until fairly recently, the passage that I read to you this morning, people would have, would have maybe yawned as they were reading it, saying, well, yeah, of course, that's, yeah, no, no problem. Up, up until fairly recently, there wasn't any debate about what this meant. And for most of the last 2,000 years, these verses have been read and taught in churches and people have nodded their head and assumed that this was the way that God had designed us. Unlike during the Reformation, there haven't been any new biblical discoveries about these, these texts. Uh, we've, we've learned a little bit more about the background culture. We've, we've, we've uh, discovered some things about what was happening in Rome during this time. But nobody has, has said, oh, there, there's, there's some new thing that you need to understand about what Paul was saying here. It, there really haven't, hasn't been anything like that. What there has been is a shift in our culture, and these teachings have become incredibly unpopular. And and we have seen churches just start teaching different things as a result. Listen to Harold Brown's observation, theologian uh, Harold, Harold Brown, before we get into the text. He says, when opinions and convictions suddenly undergo dramatic alteration, although nothing new has been discovered, and the only thing that has dramatically changed is the spirit of the age, it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that that spirit has had an important role to play in the shift. I think we need to hear that. Emotions aside, 
I think we need to let God's word speak and follow it where it leads. So that's my preamble. Let's dive in to verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Let me start by clarifying what this passage is not saying. Uh, the context we saw beginning in uh, 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 verse 1 is about how the church is to function. He is laying out instructions for uh, church order. So this isn't saying that women can't be university professors or school teachers. It's not saying that they can't run companies or sports teams. Uh, it is uh, talking in, in particular here about, uh, about, the, about the church and how the church is to function and, and to be ordered. Uh, it's obscured by your chapter divisions here, uh, but if you are looking, uh, four verses later, Paul will lay out the qualifications for uh, those who are to lead the church, the elders, and uh, they are the uh, male, qualified male leaders that are set apart for leadership. And his teaching here is almost certainly preparing us for that. Uh, this, uh, what he's saying here uh, isn't just coincidentally coming before his instructions about, uh, about elders in the church. When it says that the women are to remain quiet, this is not a gag order and cannot be a gag order. In 1 Corinthians 11.5, he talks about women praying and prophesying, and he doesn't have any problem with that. So it is, it is not a, a blanket prohibition that women are to kind of walk around quietly all the time. That's not what this is saying. In Titus 2, Paul asks older women to teach the younger women. So apparently that's fair game as well. In Acts 18.26, Priscilla and Aquila come alongside a, 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 a young and promising teacher named Apollos, and they straighten out his theology. They set him straight about a number of things, and Priscilla's name is mentioned before Aquila, and partic- uh, presumably because she took the lead in the conversation. And that's fair game as well. Informal conversations to uh, straighten out somebody's um, misunderstanding around Scripture. That's okay. It's just when it comes to the authoritative teaching of the gathered church, women are called to learn, not to lead. Now, I wouldn't be doing my job as a pastor if I didn't spend a lot of time looking at all of the counter-arguments, diving into the different things that people have begun to say, scholars have begun to put forward over the last uh, 30 to 40 years in, in contradiction to, to what we're reading this morning. As some scholars say, for instance, he's just saying this because the, teach, the, the women at Ephesus were teaching false doctrine. And, and that's possible. But... If that were the case, wouldn't he just say, women, stop teaching false doctrine? Would he, would he really make the rule, I, do, I, I've, I forbid women to, to teach or have authority over men? Like, what, where would, how would you go from, women are teaching false doctrine, so no more women teaching? You say, just stop teaching false doctrine, wouldn't you? Uh, some people say that Paul just said this because people were, uh, women weren't very educated back then. But the problem is, some women were quite educated back then, and plenty of men weren't. And 
when has a person's level of education been the standard or the qualification for whether they could teach or not? Why wouldn't that show up in the list of qualifications for elders just four verses later? Why wouldn't he say, if you're going to be an elder, you've really got to have a basic level of, 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 of education. That's really important. It doesn't say that. Why, why just disqualify a gender outright? That doesn't make sense. Some people say, Paul just said this because there was a specific problem at Ephesus. The problem with that is, he says something almost, uh, almost the same thing in 1 Corinthians 14.34. And in verse 8, as we saw at the beginning, he's already said that these are the instructions that he gives in every place. This wasn't some unique thing at Ephesus that we've got to dissect and, and only applied to them. No, this, is what, this was the message that he was giving as he went round to churches. This was the prescription. Uh, probably the, the, the strongest argument against all of those uh, ideas comes uh, right in the text itself in verses 13 and 14. Because Paul actually tells you why he is uh, laying things out as he is. He says this, verses 13 and 14, for, pointing back to the, reason, the, the thing that he has just said in verse 12, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Do you see the word for there? He is showing you the reason for the prohibition that he's given in verse 12. It's not for the Ephesian women are teaching some false doctrine, so I'm just going to lay this down and blanket, cut them out. It's not that. He doesn't say for the Ephesian women just really aren't that well educated, and so I, I, I kind of feel uncomfortable about them doing this teaching thing. He doesn't say that. He says, for, and then he's going to point them all the way back to the garden and God's design for a gender that is laid out there. Now, uh, I think it's clear that's where he's getting his, his argument here, his, his thinking here. Uh, we could misunderstand what he's actually saying about the garden, and so I want to look at this. Adam was formed first, then Eve. What does that have to do with anything? I once asked someone who disagreed with what I think this passage is saying. I once asked them, oh, what do you see as the significance of God creating Adam first and then Eve? And they said to me, I don't think there's any significance in that. And I said, but Paul does. Isn't that a problem for you? Like you're reading the Bible differently than the Apostle Paul. Surely that's, a, surely that's a problem. Paul seems to suggest that God creating Adam first and then Eve was deliberate, and there are deliberate implications of that. And, and we need to, to, to break that down a little bit. Have you ever thought about the fact that God could very easily have created Adam and Eve both at the same time? He could have created them at the same time. could have created them with the same bodies. He chose not to. He chose to create Adam first and then Eve. It's Adam who actually first calls Eve woman. The first person on the job 
has some seniority. They have some extra responsibilities. They're responsible, responsible for orient, orientation of new workers. The oldest, uh, uh, the oldest sibling in a family is often have, has extra responsibilities. The, those, uh, those are, they're responsible for care and for protection. Verse 14 makes the point that Eve was deceived, but throughout Scripture, whose sin do we talk about? Whose sin is it that we talk about? We have all inherited whose sin? Adam's sin. Why does Adam keep getting blamed throughout Scripture for, uh, for the sin in the garden? We, we know what happened there. We know that, that, that Eve's name is mentioned first. That's because Adam should have protected Eve. That's because Adam was created first and he had greater responsibility to protect her. He had greater responsibility and he is the one held accountable by God. That was the role God gave him. He failed in that role, so sin entered into this world. And so throughout scripture, whenever we're talking about responsibility, it's always Adam's fault. If you go home this afternoon and somebody asks you, hey, what was the sermon about today? What did you learn? Uh, maybe what you could tell them is the pastor said, it's always the husband's fault. And, and in a sense, it is. It, it, in a sense, it is because it, it is the husband that is held to a greater responsibility. A, a husband is, is called to, to step in. It, it's, it's not because he's better. It's certainly not because he's more faithful. Often the opposite is the case. He is called to, to that and he is given that, 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 that role by God. And God will hold us accountable. In the church, God gives qualified men the role of elder or pastor and he holds them accountable for the doctrinal teaching of the church. If Grace Baptist Church goes off the rails, I'm on the hook with it on the hook for it, along with our other elders. We will be held responsible. That's why I get paid to say some things that I know very well that every Sunday there's going to be some people who just don't like what I said. But I got to say them anyway because I know I'm going to be held accountable for God, by God. I'm on the hook for the doctrinal standing of our congregation. It's the role that God has given. And, and, and we're just looking that and, and trying to, to understand that. Now, while we're on the topic of unpopular teachings, let's turn to verse 15. And if there's anyone in the, phone, in the sound booth who wants to just throw, throw up their hand at this point and say, Paul, we're out of time. Let's just, let's just close and go with a closing song. I would be I would, I would bless you for that. Alfred, you're, you're smiling, you're not raising your hand. Verse 15 says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Obviously, this verse isn't saying that women are saved by having babies. Nobody believes that today. Nobody has believed that through the history of the church. That has never been anybody's understanding of this verse. We get a little help in understanding what it does mean uh, by reading 1 Timothy 4.16. 
Because there, Paul uses almost the exact same phrasing and language in his words to Timothy, and he tells him that he will save himself by keeping a close watch on himself and his teaching. You're gonna, he doesn't believe that Timothy can save himself in terms of, of being forgiven of his sins by watching the, watching the doctrine, watching the church's teaching. He knows that that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. But what he is saying is, talking about salvation in terms of its fullness, talking about salvation in terms of all of its benefits, continuing on, because whether you are a pastor and you have been called to, to guard the doctrinal integrity of a church, or whether you are a woman and you have call, been called to honor your design and, and God's calling upon your life, the message is the answers are in God and his calling. The answers are not in this world. And the fact is, at this time in history, uh, 2,000 years ago, first century Ephesus, people were being tempted to look to the world for their answers. That new Roman woman thing. That, they, they seem to be getting a lot of attention. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe I, maybe I do need to, 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 to look more seductive. Maybe I do need to show more skin. Maybe, maybe I do need to throw off this conservative, modest lifestyle that I've been living because maybe that's the answer. Maybe that will give me the, the, the kind of, uh, of fulfillment that I've been looking for. And, and maybe I do need to abandon what, what, what the Bible has taught me about, uh, about a, God's calling upon women. And, and, and maybe the answer is, I, I've got to become more like a man and I've, I've got to compete with them and, and beat them. Maybe that's where I'll find my fulfillment. And that's not the answer. Paul's saying that, that, is, that is not the place to be looking. The answers are in God's design, not the world's false promises. Now that doesn't mean that you're less of a woman if you can't have children. But it is saying there's something beautiful in your femininity. It is saying that there is something intentional about God's design for you. We are the first generation, I believe, in history that struggles to answer the question, what is a woman? And the, the scriptures aren't unclear on this. Uh, script, uh, women have been created. Uh, women are the kind of women, uh, are the kind of people who have been created with a capacity to give life. And it, it is in that that uh, we are understanding God's, God's design and purpose. We accept and we embrace God's design. That doesn't mean that you are less of a woman if you, if you can't, have, can't have children. But it means that there is something beautiful about God's design for you. There is something affirming and wonderful about God's design for you. It is saying that is where your answers are. They are in God's design, in God's purpose for you. And then, as now, the world tells you the answers are somewhere else. That's what the world is saying. Ignore that. Abandon that. 
women in TV and movies today are either irresistibly seductive or they're action heroes who are beating down thugs and gangs and criminals and preferably they're both of those things at the same time. And guess what? In the midst of all of that, being a mom seems very mundane and unimportant. And God says the opposite. That raising children is is a glorious task and calling. What Gina Lynn and Cleo did this morning was a countercultural act of faith. Just, Just having children in our society today is an act of faith. Canada has, Canada, latest census, we have the lowest birth rate in recorded Canadian history the last hundred years, but it's the lowest, lowest birth rate that we've ever come up with. Not a, not a coincidence. Ours is a culture that is saying, having a child, that, that just... That just, well, that'll hold you down. That'll get in the way. That is unimportant. Do something exciting. Do something meaningful with your life. And God's saying that that is a calling that is invested with, with, with meaning and purpose and significance. That is precious in my sight. And we are called to, to embrace him. We need to hear what God's word says about gender today more than ever. Men, let's learn to confront our pride, our self-sufficiency, and to, to learn to pray. God has a solution for our anger, and he provides it to us when we are on our knees. Women, you're beautiful enough already. Everything people can see is already enough, so focus on the beauty that doesn't fade. There is an inner beauty that God takes great delight in, and it is his opinion that ultimately matters. And let's reject the lie that says we have to be the same to be equal. Let's celebrate our differences and be the people who who aren't competing with each other, but are instead complimenting one another. His plan really is good, and he's glorified when we live it out. Let's look to him now in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we live in an age that's redefining what it means to be a man and a woman, and the new definitions are destroying us. Help us to hear what you're saying and lean into the way that you've designed us. Make us a church of humble, praying men and women known for their inner beauty. Make us a church where people see men and women complimenting one another and not competing with each other. And as we do, Father, may people marvel at your design and seek you for your wisdom. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.